I refused to move seats on a plane to help out a pregnant woman, and it may have been one of the worst decisions of my life. I arrived at the gate a few minutes late, and was relieved to see that it was still open. The gate agent ushered me through, and I hurried onto the plane. I quickly made my way to my booked seat. I knew it was going to be a long flight, so I had booked an aisle seat with plenty of legroom. There was a woman sitting in the window seat who barely even registered my presence as I sat down and stretched out my aching body. I placed my earphones in and ignored the stewardess give their emergency instructions as I had seen it numerous times in the past. The plane had barely been in the air five minutes when I felt someone tap me on the shoulder. I turned to face the woman sitting beside me who was glaring at me. She demanded that I switch seats with her husband so they, they could sit together. She pointed at a man who was sitting in a middle seat surrounded by two obese men. I politely declined, as I liked my seat and didn't want to be stuck between two people for the next seven hours. She began yelling at me that she was pregnant and needed her husband beside her to keep her calm. It was pretty obvious that she was lying as her stomach was flat as a pancake. I told her that I booked my seat and her lack of forward planning wasn't my responsibility. I placed my earphones in to drown out her complaining and actually managed to doze off. I was awoken a short time later by an elbow in the side. I turned to confront her, and my mouth widened in shock. Her belly had swelled up and I could see something moving around inside. She gave me a pleading look before collapsing onto the floor. One of the stewardesses rushed forward to help her as I sat there in disbelief. I heard a scream behind me and I looked up to see that her husband had ripped out his own throat. He sat bolt upright in his chair with a huge smile on his face. His two seatmates were trying to open their seatbelts to get away from him. My attention was drawn back to the pregnant woman who began yelling that her babies were coming. She opened her mouth and a deluge of black water began spraying out and instantly drenched the stewardess who was trying to help her. The water petered out, leaving the plane utterly silent as everyone was too shocked to speak. I jumped from my seat as hundreds of white worms about the size of your finger began crawling out of the woman's mouth and onto the floor. The stewardess was sitting on the floor and the worms converged on her. She barely had time to react before they came climbing into all of her orifices. She began writhing on the floor for a few seconds before standing up and smiling at all of us. I began backing away from her as something about her smile gave me the creeps. Her smile widened as I watched, transfixed as she approached a nearby man and planted a kiss on his mouth. Initially, I thought she was slipping him the tongue before realizing to my revulsion that the worms were slithering from one person to the next. The man shook for a few moments before starting to smile. Chaos ensued as the other passengers tried to flee. I saw a number of people unintentionally get too close and be given the kiss of death. I moved to the far end of the plane and watched from behind a curtain as the infected began hunting down the others. I had to turn away in disgust as one of the infected located a baby that had been forgotten about by its parents. I began hammering away at the cockpit door and begging them to let me in. The door was flung open and I backed away as a gun was shoved into my face. 
One of the crew started lecturing me about having me arrested when we arrived. His words slowly ebbed as he looked past me at what was unfolding with the other passengers. I pushed past him into the safety of the cockpit. He was about to follow when he was dragged away screaming. I slammed the door shut with my heart pounding in my chest. I almost pissed myself when a hand wrenched around me and I stared into the eyes of the terrified captain. I carefully explained what was going on as the other passengers tried to force their way inside. We both sat there silently afterward, trying to come to terms with what was happening. I took the co-pilot's seat as we continued our flight. Exhaustion came over me and I once again drifted off to sleep. I awoke with a shriek as a nightmare that I could no longer remember jolted me awake. I turned to the pilot to ask him how much longer until we landed. I shrunk away from him as he turned to me with a wide smile and I could see the worms moving between his teeth. I hopped up and saw a small hole at the bottom of the door with worms still swarming inside. They began moving toward me and I smashed my foot down, crushing them beneath my weight. The pilot began letting out a wail that forced me to cover my ears. He raised his arms and pointed at me as I backed away until my shoulders hit the door. I wrenched it open and slammed it into his face as he advanced toward me. His wailing was partially muffled by the door as I stood there trying not to panic. I heard footsteps behind me and I turned to face the person with a giant smile on my face. A girl no older than ten walked by me with worms moving around inside of her eyeballs. She barely registered my presence as she swayed from side to side. I once peeked out around the curtains to see most of the other passengers had retaken their seats. A sea of smiling faces were looking toward me and it took every fiber of my being to keep smiling back at them. I took a couple of deep breaths before walking down the aisle. Every head followed my movements as I tried to decide what to do. I spotted the bathroom ahead and began pacing toward it. I felt something squishy beneath my feet and looked down to see the body of the baby from earlier. His stomach looked like something had crawled out of it and his ribs were pushed upwards. I let out an involuntary sob and heard the unmistakable sounds of every head spinning in my direction. I lunged toward the bathroom as hands shot out to grab me. I managed to shake them off before rushing inside and sealing the door behind me. I started wetting the toilet paper and lining the sides of the door to keep out the worms. I know it might not be enough to keep them out, but it's all I can think of. I hear a noise above me and almost start laughing as the pilot has hit the fastened seatbelt sign. I now sit here trapped in the toilet and wondering what will happen if and when we land. It won't stop growing. I remember when I first saw the truck weaving in front of me. It was one of those old and battered white work trucks that you see government crews and old handymen driving. My first thought was that it was a drunk and that I needed to slow down in case he slammed on the brakes suddenly. 
Then I was watching as the truck lurched violently to the right and tumbled down the embankment to the creek 15 feet below. I stopped and got out, and while my brain was still buzzing with adrenaline and surprise, I slid down the hill and yanked open the driver's side door. The man inside was in his fifties, and from the angle of his head, I thought his neck was probably broken. I couldn't tell if he was alive, and I knew better than to move him, but I was also starting to realize I needed to call 911. There was a colored piece of paper laying on the man's leg, and thinking it might have information I could give the hospital or the police, I plucked it out while dialing the number. It was a work order. It said that Salvador Petty, I guess this guy, had serviced the pool filter at some house out in the country. I told the 911 dispatcher where we were and what I thought the guy's name might be. He told me to go wait up in my car until emergency services arrived. Hitting the call, I glanced up to find the man staring at me, his lips working soundlessly as he tried to say something or maybe cry out in pain. I told him to stay still and quiet, that help was on the way. This just made him more animated, his eyes rolling and his lips twitching as he tried to force something out. Finally, I heard him speak, though it sounded more like a gasp of trapped air than a human voice. It won't stop growing. The man's eyes fluttered back closed, and I decided to take 911's advice and wait by my car for the authorities to arrive. When they did, the EMT thanked me for waiting, but said they'd take it from there. So, I left. By the next day, I rarely thought about the accident. It wasn't until I was cleaning out my car that the following weekend that I found the work order tucked between my seat and the console. Holding that pink slip of paper brought it all back to me, and I found myself wanting to find out what had happened to the poor guy. I called the local hospital, but they said they couldn't disclose any information about patients. I even talked to my brother-in-law at the sheriff's department, but he hadn't heard about the accident at all. Finally, feeling a bit foolish, I called the work number on the paper. After the fourth ring, a voicemail message picked up, and an older-sounding man said to leave a message at the beep with your name, number, and address, as well as what work you needed done. I tried to picture that voice coming from the gasping man trapped in the truck, and I found it wasn't hard. So, I left a message, asking for him or someone to call me back, that I was the guy who saw his accident a few days earlier, and I wanted to see how he was doing. Two more weeks passed with no word. Not only had I not forgotten about it again, but it had become a preoccupation. It got to the point that I would check my phone a couple of times an hour to see if I had a missed call. I didn't understand my need to know what had happened to him but that didn't change how compelling it had become. By the end of the second week, I was searching for a phone number connected to the address where my guy had worked on a pool filter. It was a long shot, but if the people there used him regularly, maybe they'd heard something about what had happened. There was no number, but I still had the address, and that Saturday I found myself driving across the country to a massive house tucked deep into the woods. I almost stomped and went back home several times, but it never quite happened. Every time I went to turn around, I kept telling myself that it was a fun random adventure on a boring Saturday, 
It was me being a good Samaritan, or at the very least, it would put the final nail in the coffin of my bizarre curiosity. There were no signs of people outside, and when I knocked on the door, no one answered. I felt a flutter of nervousness as I went around looking for a side or a back door to knock at. It was getting dark, and I was a stranger, looking around in the backyard like I wanted to get shot. But just one last try, and... There was the pool. I hadn't thought about the pool when I first arrived, and even when I went around the back of the property, it hadn't occurred to me right away... That was because it wasn't out in the backyard, but rather in a large building of brick and glass set away from the main house. The windows seemed to be partially grown over with some kind of vines or ivy, but I could still see the shimmer of the water reflected in the windows. Maybe I'd have better luck finding someone in there. I knocked at the door to the pool house and then opened it. Looking inside, at first I saw a young woman floating naked and face down in the hazy water of a large, well-lit swimming pool. I had the panicked thought that she must be drowning, and I stepped forward. That was when I realized my mistake. The pool wasn't well-lit at all, but instead thick with a murky sludge that had more of those black vines pouring out of it like a fountain. I looked around in horror as I realized those vines were all around me and growing closer all the time. I tried to run away, but I was already trapped. But then again, maybe I'd been trapped for a while. I live in a white room now. Most of the time I can see it as a white room and things are better then. I can see my bed, my table, my television and bookshelves, my computer and desk. They're clean and tidy, not at all tainted. They're all just right. I try to ignore the red line painted on the far line of the room. Anything past that line gets burned up. When I first got here, I used to toss pencils across the line just to watch them pop like firecrackers, but then they stopped giving me pencils and I learned to behave. Life has been better since then. Now the only time it's really bad is when I don't see the clean white room. Sometimes I see the twisted snarl of those black vines running in every direction, wrapping around me, digging through me, always trying to grow and grow and grow. That's when I feel how angry and hungry it is, how much it wants to tear me apart, but doesn't quite dare until it manages to get past that damned red line. I have visitors, occasionally. They come in strange suits and talk to me as though nothing is wrong. They give me books and let me access the internet and watch movies and play games. They seem nice, but they won't let me leave or tell me why they brought me here or what's wrong with me. When I ask them about the vines, they act like I'm making it up. Like there isn't such thing. For a minute, they had me thinking I was crazy. For a minute, they had me wondering if I was just seeing things, if maybe it was all just in my head. But then last, well, I don't know time like I did, but a little while ago, one of those doctors, or whatever they are, they came in to talk to me. I was seeing vines then, 
curling and uncurling against the walls like a thousand angry clenched fists. I was trying to ignore them and talk to the lady in the strange suit when one of the tendrils suddenly shot out toward her face. It stopped just short of the burn line like it always does because it knows. But I wasn't watching it. I was watching the woman. And she flinched. Abusive family member. I stood there silently as the daycare employee scolded me after she discovered bruises all over our son's body. Her anger turned to sympathy as she spotted a bruise on my arm that I'd failed to cover. I tried to tell her that I'd walked into a door, but she obviously didn't believe me. I picked up my son and fled out the door as she called out after me. I decided to calm myself by shopping and spent the next few hours wandering aimlessly around random shops without buying anything. I arrived home to discover police cars waiting outside and my heart sank. My husband was inside, desperately trying to convince them that he would never hurt me or any of his children. My seven-year-old daughter ran over and began cowering behind me, begging me not to let daddy hit her anymore. My husband was in handcuffs within seconds as they ignored his protests. I wept as they led him outside and forced him in the back of their car. I watched in dread as they drove off with my husband waving at me. I flinched as I felt something metal lash across my back and tear into my flesh. I turned to face my seven-year-old daughter as she stood there clutching a belt buckle with a sadistic smile on her face. Her fake tears were still streaming down her face as she reveled in the fact that my husband was no longer there to protect us from her. My son brought home a ventriloquist doll. I had an uneasy feeling the second my seven-year-old son, Sean, walked through the door with the ventriloquist doll. He and my husband had found it at a yard sale, and Sean had instantly fallen in love with it. The doll's eyes were so lifelike that I expected it to blink. The face was painted in a grotesque smile that made me wonder if the original artist was insane. Sean was constantly playing with it and trying to learn to talk without moving his lips. I refused to look at him while he was practicing his routine, as it was unnerving. His younger brother Mark just stood there, transfixed, as it was entertaining to him. Less than a week after he got the doll, he started acting out, and when he was confronted, he claimed the doll told him to do it. We scolded him and took away his devices for a week. I was awoken by my husband's screams and turned on my bedside light to discover blood dripping from a cut on his neck. Sean stood there with scissors in his hand while the doll sat on the bed smiling maniacally at us. I snapped at this point and the next day I drove an hour away and tied rocks to the doll and flung it into a lake. I told Sean that it must have been misplaced and tried not to smile as he spent the rest of the day searching for it. 
I woke up in the middle of the night with every hair on my body sticking up. I noticed there was a light out in the hallway and carefully made my way forward. My heart sank when I realized the light was coming from Mark's bedroom. My legs felt like lead as I walked through the doorway. I stopped, dead in my tracks, frozen in place as Sean repeatedly plunged a knife into Mark's body lying in the crib. My eyes were drawn to the doll sitting nearby in a chair with water dripping off of her. My husband came running into the room at the sound of my screaming and rang the police. I was comatose for days while the police interviewed Sean and eventually released him into our custody while the doll was taken into evidence. My husband had to go away for a work event, leaving me alone with Sean. I begged my husband not to go, but knew that it was futile. I felt something caressing my cheek as I awoke in my bed to discover Sean sitting on my chest with the doll clutched in his arms. I tried to move, but my arms had been tied to the bed. Sean held a knife above my throat and looked hesitant. A cold uncertainty ran through my body as I heard my husband's voice coming from the doll, telling Sean to kill me as he raised the knife above my head. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your dream job. Ever since I was a child, I only had one job in mind that I wanted to have. I'll always remember the happiness I felt when I announced it to my family. My older brother Mark just bust out laughing and told me that it wasn't a real job and that only losers think of doing that. I burst out crying as the rest of my family joined in on making fun of me. Over the years, I became an engineer, but worked my dream job in my spare time. It wasn't about the money, but the joy I felt doing something that I loved. My brother and I reconciled a few months ago, but there is a bit of tension between us due to all of his bullying throughout our childhood. Lately, he's mentioned a few times about how his biggest regret were the harsh words he exchanged with his son Steve before he went away from home. I decided to be the better person and reunite them. I finally found Steve, and he was reluctant to meet his father, but I managed to convince him that it was a good idea. I hid Steve in my bedroom and told him to be quiet and come out when I called out, Surprise! Mark and his wife Laura showed up, and we made small talk for a few minutes as I sat there bubbling with excitement. I couldn't take it any longer and just blurted out surprise at the top of my lungs. Their eyes widened in shock as Steve strolled into the room with a huge smile on his face. 
Laura screamed and fainted to the ground as she stared at the rotting corpse of her son. I stood there feeling proud of myself as I'd finally proved to my brother that necromancy was a real job. Hold your burning hand in mine. It was the smell of gasoline that first woke me up. I jerked at the twisting smell of future fire in my nostrils and blinked against the dark of my bedroom. I was still in my house in my bed, but unlike when I'd gone to sleep, I was no longer alone. I'm sorry to wake you, Misha, but you have to see it. My heart was pounding, but the sharp fear that had come with being startled by the looming shadow next to my bed was dulled by the familiarity and confusion. Rollo? Is that you? I saw the shadows giving a shudder, but that was all. What are you doing here? Something wrong? Why do you smell like petrol? His voice was rough with emotion when he spoke, and I had a moment where I thought he might have been drinking. But his words weren't slurred or imprecise, just thick with a kind of dread and sadness that made my pulse quicken as I reached for my bedside lamp. His hand caught my gesture wet and slick and cold against my wrist, and I gave a small yelp despite myself. I'm sorry, little Belle. You should not see until you must. It would only make it worse for both of us. He let go of my wrist and I instinctively pulled it against my chest, rubbing away some foul-smelling residue on my sleep shirt while trying to make sense of what was happening. You hurt? Do you need a doctor? No. There's no help for it. He was silent for a moment. I almost tried to get up and move past him. I trusted my brother, but he was acting very strange and I didn't know if he was in his right mind. Besides, the fumes were making my eyes water and I just... I went back down to the tunnels this afternoon. I started at that. Last week, Rollo and our father had been out hunting in the woods behind our parents' house when father fell into what they first thought was a small sinkhole or a crumbling bit of limestone shelf. When they looked closer, they saw it was a portion of a collapsed tunnel. A tunnel that looked very old and man-made. Rollo had carefully climbed down to join Father, and between the meager afternoon light and the forest of the small light Rollo always carried, they could see that the tunnel wasn't as closed as the shadows had made it appear. In one direction, there was a two-foot gap above a pile of rock and tangled roots, and in the other... It seemed a grown man could walk freely if he stooped. Father tried to stop him when he moved in to explore, but he'd ignored him at first, moving forward in the strangely thick and hot air. Rolo thought he could see something ahead. A new tunnel, or perhaps a room. As he walked closer, he saw that he was right. The tunnel opened up to a room of some kind. 
He stood at a roughly carved asymmetrical doorway, shining his light into a narrow rectangular room filled with a shadow landscape of stone plinths and stalactite carvings that looked like questing hands reaching down into the dancing dark. He gave a nervous laugh when he was telling this part to me, his gaze shifting this way and that as though not sure where to light. I knew he was remembering being down in that strange and hidden place and that the memory still made him afraid, even if he would never admit it. Instead, he talked about how he was startled by Father's hand on his shoulder, telling him that they needed to get out and that it wasn't safe, that they needed to call the authorities. Rolowood looked funny, almost as though he was going to tell me something more. But then he just shrugged and said he'd obeyed, and then crawled back out the way they'd come. And once they reached home... Father had called the university and told them about what they'd found. It was bad timing with the summer break and everything else going on, but after a few calls, he got a professor in the archaeology department to agree to come out later in the month. He asked Father not to let anyone else go down there and to put up a warning sign and a string cordon if it wouldn't be too much trouble. Father, who'd always been a little in awe of the academics of the world, proudly and quickly agreed. I hadn't seen the place myself, not even the cordon, and I only had the vaguest ideas of what part of the wood they'd been in when my father had fallen through. To me, it was an interesting story, made more interesting by the involvement of my family and our land, but nothing more. Since the day Rolo told me about it over lunch, I hadn't given it another thought. Rolo, why? Papa said not to. Did you take something from down there? He made a sound that might have been a laugh, and a new wave of fetid corkscrew smell found its way into my nose. (laughs) I suppose so. I haven't slept in days. I kept dreaming of it. And then last night I realized I was walking towards it. I was barefoot, half-dressed, moving through the woods like a zombie. Maybe I could have stopped myself, but I didn't want to. I wanted to see it again to hear that voice again. I frowned in his direction. Voice? What voice? His words were flat, black stones skipping across the darkness between us. You'll see soon enough, Misha. I could sense more than see him reaching into his pocket as he went on. I'm not right for what I want. It tried to change me, but I'm not strong enough. When it asked me who was the strongest, best person I know, his voice broke a little, becoming wet and raw. First I thought I had, it was of you. God help me, I couldn't help but think of my brave little Belle and it saw you. And once it saw you, it wanted you. For that it says you must see this. I could hardly breathe. I was so afraid I should have been trying to get past him and out of the room. That had been my thought for the past several seconds as he spoke again, but instead I heard myself asking, What? What must I see? The raspy click of the lighter answered for him. The tongue of flame was impossibly bright in the midnight murk of my room, stunning me for a moment as he touched it to his arm. 
The fire ate him hungrily as he wheeled backwards, slamming against the far wall and catching it alight. He never screamed or said anything, just flailed and twisted as the heat made his muscles and ligaments jerk and snap tight before being consumed. I was silent too, staring in mute horror at what was happening to my brother and at what I could see of him in the flames. I try not to lie to myself, tell myself that was what I saw from the fire or my terrified and idled brain. That Rollo hadn't looked like that before setting himself afire. But it's a hollow lie. Even in the moment as I watched my brother slide down the burning wall and shudder his last, the lie held no real weight or power or reality. I was already sensing some other truth as the rotten smell I'd noticed before came back stronger. Sliding out of bed, I looked around in the shifting firelight but saw nothing. And then there was a hand on my shoulder, a voice speaking to me, telling me it was time to go. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. If you did, be sure to subscribe so you can hear more when they get dropped and leave a like to let me know that you did. Let me know in the comments below which one was your favorite. Personally, I am privy to the ventriloquist doll story. I've always been deathly afraid of dolls, ventriloquist dolls, dummies, things like that, and I'm fairly fairly certain it stems from Night of the Living Dummy by um, R.L. Stein. Watching that as a kid just pretty much traumatized me. Um, that and the Scarecrow's Walk at Midnight. I, I, I'm very terrified of Scarecrows, and I know it's a silly, silly thing to be afraid of, because Scarecrows don't really look like they did in the movie or the show, um, but it's fine. I still don't like them, and I hope they die. Or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, are you afraid of things like that? Are you afraid of scarecrows? Are you afraid of ventriloquist dummies or mannequins, perhaps? I don't like those either. <laughs> Let me know down in the comment section below what your most irrational fear is. Uh, you're afraid of something that you know probably can't hurt you, but for some reason you just don't want to be close to it. Let me know down in the comment section below. Hope you all had a wonderful time listening. Hope you have a great afternoon, evening, or morning. And as always, stay safe out there.